Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Would you stand with me, please? Being out of Exodus chapter 3, now, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word today. Pray that you open our hearts and our minds to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Homecoming is always an emotional time for me. It, it's always a mile marker and um, it has certain elements to it. This one today, uh, even more so. I'm taking a title today, Who Am I?, that was actually the title of the last message that my father ever gave. Um, four years ago, he was in this place on, I believe it was Labor Day weekend, and shared what we didn't know, but turned out to be his last message, and it was whom I was based more out of David's addressment of this phrase. Um, And as he sat on the platform sharing, because he was at that point 92 years of age, we didn't know at the time, but he had, um, uh, weeks or months before, had had a fall and had um, broken his back in three places. And... The physicians in where he lived didn't pick up on that. So when he was here for that message, um, he'd been on pain pills. He didn't take the pills for that day so he could be clear-cut in what he was doing. And so he gave that message with a broken back in three places that he found out about the next day when he visited the doctors here. An impressive generation. Just, just was. A couple of years back... Renee and I did a, a refinance on our, our house. We took advantage of some of the rates that were going at the time. And the person came to finish the deal, and they came to our home to do it. And as they're going every, through everything, there was an, a, a difference in what was in the original papers and what we had there. Uh, my name is Randall with one L, um, but I usually just go by Randy. And, um, and one of the terms was in Randy. One of them was Randall. She was a little concerned about that and that I wasn't who I said I was. And so I said, look, I said, I, I am who I say I am. Here's my license. Here's my passport. Um, you can go online. And she seemed half convinced. And then she actually goes online. I said, we have a website. You can see who I am. And, and she Googled something. And then look came on her face. And she says, no, we need to do this another time. And I'm like, what is going on with this? I am who I am, you know? Not to go Popeye on you. Um, <laughs> Just little, not full Popeye, just. So I was curious. I'd never Googled myself. Never did that. So after she left, I sit down at the computer and I put in Randy Tomko and I pop up images. And this was one of the images that came up. (laughs) 
Now, this is actually one of the better images because this is actually taken a couple years later. There's a more recent one. The original one came up was a mugshot because this guy, who is Randall with two L's, Eugene Tomko, of Lakeland, Florida, which incidentally I went to college there for a year or two, um, he was a loss prevention officer and a Walmart or something else, and uh, when someone was stealing something, he and others tried to tackle them, and in doing so, uh, caused their death. And so he was on charges for negligent homicide. So, so he, the mug picture is what shows up, and, and that's Randy Tomko. And so this was just one of the pictures, and I could see some confusion. And then the other picture that popped up was this one. And I could... S- <laughs> true story, true story. True story. And I, and I could see the confusion on her face right then, looking at me and saying, well, you've lost some weight. And yes, I have. Okay. Those were back in the days when I was doing MMA and stuff like that. But, but these are the two pictures that would pop up. And um, the thing that's interesting to me on this one is this is uh, somewhat younger than I am. Um, and the actual name is Travis, I guess, Tomko. But the previous one, uh, picture real quickly, this guy actually is the same age as I am. And he was in Lakeland, Florida. And I look, and he's now died of a heart attack just two years ago in the midst of COVID, I found out. Not that I'm stalking this guy or anything, okay. <laughs> but in preparation, I wanted to be up to date. And um, it, it crossed my mind this morning even. I just thought, okay, if, if my life had taken a different track, you know, there's a lot of similarities and uh, what that would look like and what that would mean. The concept of identity, the concept of trying to sort out who we are anymore. And I, I think that we can say this phrase in three different ways. We can say it as a questioning, who am I? Tone is everything in communication. It's like 90% of the communication. So I can say, who am I? Or I can do as Moses is doing in this passage here with the humility, say, who am I? I could also have confidence at one point in time and someone's questioning, who are you? I can say, who, who am I? Let me tell you who I am. I think we begin oftentimes and for many of us in our society today, because identity is such a huge issue in our society, we're kind of stuck on the first statement, who am I? Are we defined by our gender, our accomplishments, uh, your position, your possessions, your profession? We, we don't really understand who we are. We have so many different roles that we have to play, whether as parents or as children or as bosses or employees or all the different things that we play part of, we don't even know who we are anymore. There's a movie that is just a horrible movie, but there are some humorous parts to it. And I won't name the movie, but there's this actor, he's a great actor, and he's playing a role in this thing, and it's clear that he's not who it is, appears to be. And there's a classic line when someone questions him about who he is. And he says, me, uh, whether he knows who he is, he says, me, I know who I am. I'm just a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. And you look at that, what did you just say? I said, I'm just a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. As the movie progresses at one point in time and things evolve because there are a bunch of actors who are playing a role in creating this movie. So they're actors playing actors, if you will, to create this movie. And near the end of the movie as people's understanding of who they are and their roles begins to disintegrate, um, he's challenged at one point again on who he is. And he makes that statement, I'm just a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. And someone said to him very pointedly, or are you a dude who has no idea what dude he is and claims to know what dude he is? Following all this so far? Okay. This throws him into real crisis. As they say, you're scared. Scared of what you're scared of yourself. And suddenly that kind of shatters everything in him. 
And he ends up making the statement. He says, you know, you're right. And in a brilliant moment of acting, his voice changes. And he strips off the hair and says, I'm not Sergeant Lincoln Osiris. He rips off the beard and says, nor am I Father Omali. Then he takes off the contact lens and says, nor am I Neil Armstrong. And then he just hesitates. And he says, "I, I I think I might be nobody. I think this is a statement of a generation today. That they've played so many different roles, so many different things where we try to grasp who we are and our identity that we're lost to the point that we have no idea who we are. We've been told that it's to build self-esteem, that the real problem in our society is to build self-esteem, that we don't have enough self-esteem. But there is a large body of evidence that would say the reverse, that actually it's because we have too much self-esteem. We're too focused upon ourselves. The message of the gospel when it came to the pagans was viewed as good news because they were constantly caught with a sense of guilt and their awareness of, of their status before a righteous God, even if it was just gods they'd created. But modern man, we've convinced ourselves that we are at the apex, that everything revolves around us. So, so even our study for self-actualization or identity, it's still all ultimately about us. In this passage of scripture, Moses um, has reached about the age of 80 at this point in time. The first 40 years he spent as a prince of Egypt. And then after a series of events, he's gone into the desert and has had this life of, of isolation and loneliness. And so for 40 years he's had this when suddenly there's this bush that is burning in the distance and, and it doesn't seem to be consumed. And he's caught by that because it continues to burn, but, but there's no destruction involved. And so he goes off the beaten path. He takes this different path. And with that, his whole life takes a different path. He was on a certain path, but this drew him off into another track. And this is the same thing with those of us who call ourselves Christians or are called by that name. We were on one path when God redirected our path to another way. And so he goes off-road. And in going off-road, he meets with God. And God speaks to him at the holy ground and taking off his sandals. And, 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 and as he approaches him, he then gives him a charge. He wants him to go and go back to Egypt and bring the children of Israel out of there. And the whole issue of Egypt, we're not going to go into today, but, but this was a, a pivotal moment in Jewish history and a pivotal moment in our own history as believers because it encompasses everything, that sense of slavery, that sense of, of being locked away, that sense of hopelessness, and then suddenly a liberation that comes Uh, the angel of death passing over the house. And so for generations afterwards, the Jews would celebrate Passover, the time when the angel passed over because the blood of this lamb spread over the doorpost. And they celebrated. It was this very celebration that Jesus took and turned into communion and to Eucharist, showing that he was the lamb of God. He was the one whose innocent blood was shed over the doorposts of our own heart and house. And so the angel of death has passed over. So this is an important, significant part in all of history. And it almost doesn't happen. It happens because Moses responds and goes off-road. But it still almost doesn't happen because what follows after this is what I've referred to as the absolutely worst job interview ever. (laughs) Ever. You talk about blowing a job interview. You're being interviewed by God, if you will, for one of the most massive, if not in fact the most massive job in history. The freeing of the children of Israel, which will echo out throughout history and time, set up the, 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 re- the death and resurrection of Christ, all this stuff. 
And so God says, go and do this. And there's a series of questions that Moses has. He says, who am I? Who am I that I should do this thing? And 40 years before Moses thought he knew who he was. He was a prince of Egypt. He was the, the, the one who was a Hebrew. He was the one who was going to deliver God's people. And so he sees a, a, an overseer beating a Hebrew slave, and now he identifies with that Hebrew slave. So he kills that guy that was beating him. I know who I am. I am the rescuer. I am the one who will take charge. I will take action. I will redeem people. I am a prince of Egypt who will change the whole system. But then later, there's two Hebrews fighting, and he says, man, we should not be this way, and he tries to assert his authority and leadership, and one of them says, are you going to kill one of us just like you killed that, that Egyptian guy? Not only is it a rejection and a, and a splash of cold water in his face and a rejection of his leadership and role, but it's, it's an awareness. What, somebody else knows about that? He's a murderer. He's not a revolutionary. He's a murderer. And so in shame and fear and guilt and in terror, he flees that life. It marks him. For decades, he's isolated. He's alone. The shame of that moment, the guilt, the fear that he could be found out, all that is weighing on him so that now this haughty, educated, um, powerful individual now comes before God and when God calls him and has a job for him to do to go back to Egypt and address the issue, but now under his authority, under his power, in the timing of God, not his own, he is now a broken individual. This is who am I that I should do this? Part of it is that he's lost some sense of identity, we could argue, while he's out there. But a lot of it's that brokenness, that fear, the marking of what happened at that time that continues to weigh upon him. Who am I that I should do this and go to Pharaoh and draw these people out? At one time, he knew who he was and he thought he did and he was ready to do all that, but, but it was in his own power, in his own timing, separate from God. Now God calls him for that. So that's the first question, who am I? God comes along and, and explains who he is. He says, look at it, I'll be with you. And that should have been the end of the conversation. And, 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 and for us here, I would say, if, if we say, who am I? And God says, I'll be with you. That should be the end of the conversation. It's not so much who we are, it's who he is. That's a good amen point. You guys missed that totally. I'm like, totally. It's not so much who we are, it's who he is. And in that, our identity is found. That's this message in a nutshell. In that, our identity is found. The conversation should have ended right there. Who am I that I should go to Egypt or go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. Yeah, but what else? <laughs> I just get the sense of God saying, are you serious? The God of the universe, the creator of all time and space and authority above all things and, and all, and, I, and I, I, that, you want more. Okay, well, um, that was my best shot. Let me think. So the next question, he says, Moses says, okay, so you're going to be with me, but, but who are you? <laughs> he says, okay, um, you know the one who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your forefathers, found? That's, that's who I am. Um, Yahweh, I am that I am. I'm the self-existent one. One of the most powerful statements we have as to the identity of God is shared in this moment. 
his personal name even, Yahweh. Sometimes pronounced as Jehovah. We don't really know for sure because the Jews were so caught with, with awe in sight of God that they removed um, the vowels from it. So we still really don't know fully. That's still not enough. He gets the actual personal name of God and links it to his ancestors. And then he says, but, but what if I'm not believed? What if, what if they don't believe me? Okay, so I'm saying I'll be with you. I've given my personal name to you and bonded that. And you still sit here and go, what if I go? Okay. Um, what's that in your hand? It's a staff. Okay, throw it on the ground. Throws it on the ground. It turns into a snake. Pick it up again by the tail. Okay, it turns into a staff again. Wow, that's a cool party trick. He says, put your hand inside your, 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 your uh, cloak. Does that and comes out leprous, white, totally dead. Put it back in again. Comes out clean, totally restored. In other words, I can do miraculous things with you. That should have been enough. Who am I? Uh, who are you? Uh, what if I'm not believed? He says, look, you can go and do these signs. And he still stops. And he says, you know, I'm, 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 I'm slow of speech. And I imagine at this point in time, if there's anything like celestial hair, that it's being torn out at this point in time. <laughs> and, and, and God goes off on this tirade. Now, before this, he'd actually, when it came to the miraculous part, he actually goes off for a couple of paragraphs and all the miraculous things and powerful things that are going to happen and what could be done and how all this is going to be liberated. He's got this rolling conversation going along, and, and, and he gets stopped again by these questions, these comments. And, and so it's like God's sitting here going, we've got this great thing happening. You're going to be part of this. Okay, but we got this great thing happening. Okay, but we have this really great thing. Okay. And he keeps getting interrupted and getting stopped in the middle of it. Moses is just not into the whole deal at all. He said, Moses says, Lord, oh Lord, I've never been eloquent neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord, now go and I'll help you speak and we'll teach you what to say? Come on, guy. I made all this stuff. Don't you think I know that you have a speech issue and all like that? But don't you know that I'm the one who made this? I mean, you can just imagine this happening. I just don't know why there's not this, this lightning bolt and God says, we're starting over with somebody else. Anybody else out there? Any other shepherds? But he doesn't. He actually continues. And this is showing you something. This is the patience of our God. We think that the moment we question something or that we stumble, that he discards us. We discard people. God doesn't, ever. Ever. He continues to answer. He continues to engage him. And even after that, now go and I'll help you speak and we'll teach you what to say. But Moses continues, says, oh Lord, please someone else. He's out of excuse. Just, just send somebody else to do it. Bottom line, I don't want to do this. Last time I was in Egypt, it didn't go well. Just get somebody else to do it. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is so funny to me. Then the Lord's anger burned. No kidding. Um, and he said, okay, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well, right? Let's, let's recruit Aaron. And at this point in time, he runs out of excuses. And he allows God to work with him. But it is an incredibly slow process. He's so caught up with things in his past 
that had identified him that he just couldn't quite get past that moment. How much does your past define you and in how you respond to God? If Moses had continued past question five or statement five, just send somebody else, the whole course of history could have been changed. Certainly the course of Moses' life. And it's not that his life got easy after that. It just was that at that point in time, he and God began to walk together in relationship. And Moses' character over time began to change and transform. In many ways, in this moment of time, there is an action of repentance, if you will, on Moses' part that's implied through this whole process that he repents of doing these things on his own and the way he had done those things and that now he's going to embrace and do things the way that God wants. Now, he doesn't do it perfectly. There's still mistakes and errors he makes. But his life takes a radically different trajectory from this point on. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, there's a question, number 87, that says, what is repentance unto life? And it makes this statement, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin or her sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now, I want to have this up there because I want you to hear this because we think of repentance as just being sorrowful for what we've done. Oftentimes, it's because we've been getting caught in what we've done or sorrow over the past. I'm sure that Moses had a lot of weeping for a lot of years over what had happened beforehand. But what transforms in that moment of that burning bush and what transforms in the life of a believer when we accept that Christ is that lamb whose blood was shed for us and that we have been forgiven, not because of all our greatness, but because of the very lack of that, that then we enter into and say repentance now is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his or her sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God. Why? Why, did, why do we need mercy? Because we're not worthy of it, because we're broken individuals, because we're failed individuals. But, but we apprehend the mercy of God in Christ and his sacrifice that we with grief and hatred of our sin, not tolerating it, but hatred of our sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of endeavor after for a new obedience. That's repentance. That's what happens in this moment of time with Moses that he separates from everything else that had gone before and that at this point in time, he begins to embrace the things of God. In the New Testament, it spells it out this way. This is for every one of us that claim we're followers of Christ in this room. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's phrases in here that are viewed as hate speech today, but this is what the scripture is saying. And what's really important is not that phrase. What's really important is the next line after, because he's speaking to the church not to those who are lost and pagan. He's speaking this to the church. He's saying this to you and to me. And he says, don't you know that the wrongdoers, the sexual moral, adulterous, men with sex, thieves, drunkards, none of these are going to inherit the kingdom. And that is what some of you were. That's what some of you were. That's what some of us were. 
This is not an indictment of the world. This is a statement about the church and where we once were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that means that we are so much better than everybody else. I mean, come on. It's not like we're like that anymore. We're washed, we're saved, we're so much better than anybody else. And this is the point where the live stream cuts out and someone sits here and says, wow, what a messed up place. (laughs) That's what I hate about things like that. Because we all know, and those in this room, that that was a sarcastic statement. Let's go on. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, earlier he'd set up the whole thing beforehand. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what, you, of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. We, we looked at the celebrities, and because they've endorsed this product, somehow we could. And so now when celebrities endorse Christianity or do something else, but their lives don't line up towards that. And so we think somehow that's the deal. And, 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 the, and the flash and all the, the grace of, well, what if it's all stripped away? What if it's just us out in the desert with a bush that burns but doesn't, doesn't consume itself? What if it's all stripped What if we're just left with our own guilt and our own failings and our own shortcomings? Brothers and sisters, think what you were and you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. If this is the church that you came to to get connected and and create a network and to sell your stuff, then you came to the wrong church. We're not that good at that. If you look for the place where everyone dresses really cool and sharp and they're all bright and flashy and everyone's funny all the time with perfect lives, I don't know what church you're going to, but it's not this one. But if you came to a place where you bring the simpleness of who you are and you're willing to bring that before God, you're willing to to look at yourself to say, with us, Who am I? Who are you? Who are we? Let me answer that. We are the broken. We are the failed and the fallen. And if that's all you need to hear, then then why gather? Why pursue anything? Why we're just left in that desert moment? But things changed. God did call us out. He did pull us aside. And there was something miraculous and transformational as we face this in us that no longer are we the broken and the failed and the fallen. We are the redeemed, the reconciled, and the restored. And that is a radical difference. And you'd sit here and say, well, that seems like you're saying you are better than anyone else. No, we are not. Not many of us were wise by human standards. Not many of us were influential. Not many of us were of noble birth. Some, but not many of us. But God chose the foolish things of the world. Guess who that is, guys? That's us. We are so funny. Who am I? Well, I'll be with you. Okay, well, that's not enough. I'll have some miracles. Well, that's not enough. Well, this and this. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might what? Boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. There's a word. It's called a neologism, which means a new word. It is created by uh, Tolkien. Um, he was really into words a lot. And this word he created was eucatastrophe. It's such a weird word, right? Eucatastrophe. And it was po- coming from the phrase good and sudden turn. In essence, a eucatastrophe is a massive turn in fortune from a seemingly unconquerable situation to an unforeseen victory, usually brought by grace rather than heroic effort. Usually brought by grace rather than heroic effort. The birth of Christ for Tolkien was a eucatastrophe of man's history. There was something bad happening before that. The birth of Christ changes that. The resurrection is a eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. There's Christ incarnate and there's a suffering and there's a death, but then there's a resurrection that suddenly transforms everything. A eucatastrophe is more than just a a happy or positive ending. The eucatastrophe is more properly the reversal of the tragic ending. It doesn't mean that all the past is lost or forgotten or, or go, but rather by transcending it folding it within a larger narrative movement that changes its very meaning. The bitter and the wasted years are not so easily forgotten, but the purpose of the eucatastrophe is not to forget it, but to remember it differently, to remember it differently, to take the past that we've had and suddenly weave that in. And so now Moses can see, oh, those 40 years in Egypt weren't wasted moments Oh, those other 40 years of my time out in the desert in isolation were not wasted moments. Those, those, those items are not removed, but now they're folded into a wider narrative from which his world expands, and he walks into Egypt under the power of God to release the children of Israel from their bondage. It's a massive shift. Now, since we're on Tolkien, we, we, we need to at least touch on briefly the Lord of the Rings. So we'll do that briefly without commenting on the current uh, television series from which we all have different positions, I know, because you're deeply engaged in that. Forget it. <laughs> There's a pivotal moment in the movie, but it's not addressed the same um, as it is in the book. The time of, 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 of great conflict has occurred. The city is under massive attack. It doesn't appear that there's anyone that's going to be able to change or rescue it. Some of the dark and evil and ugly aspects are, are encroaching upon the city and even breaking in. And, and Gandalf, the one person who seems to have something going for him now, faces off against this horrible creature. Uh, a, a one person who was a man at one point in time, but in surrendering his soul basically to Satan, has faded and become a wraith over time, but still deadly in his purpose. Pippin is one of these little hobbits, these little people who, who are innocent and in their own little place in the Shire and are kind of, uh, of timid-type creatures. But over time, there's a transformation on them, and they become actually very powerful warriors. And they're brave souls. 
And so Pippin is there with Gandalf, and Pippin's nothing in this conflict except witnessing, and Gandalf's facing off against this great creature, and the book reads it, not the movie, the book reads it this way. You cannot enter here, said Gandalf, and the huge shadow halted. Go back to the abyss prepared for you. Go back. Fall into the nothingness that awaits you and your master. Go. And the black rider flung back his hood, and behold, he had a kingly crown, and yet upon no head visible was it set. The red fire shone between it and the mantled shoulders vast and dark, and from mouth unseen there came a deadly laughter. Old fool, he said, old fool, this is my hour. You do not know death. Do you not know death when you see it? Die now and curse in vain. And with that he lifted high his sword and the flames ran down the blade. But Gandalf did not move. And at that very moment, away behind in some courtyard of the city, a cock crowed. Shrill and clear he crowed, reckoning nothing of wizardry or war, welcoming only the morning, then the sky far above the shadows of death was coming with the dawn. And as if in answer, there came from far away another note, horns, 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 down the mountainside they dimly echoed, great horns of the north, wildly blowing, Rohan had come at last, this great host of cavalry. When the dark shadow at the gate withdrew over that, Gandalf still sat motionless, but Pippin rose to his feet as if a great weight had been lifted from him. He stood listening to the horns, and it seemed to him that they would break his heart with joy. And then this line, and never in after years could he hear a horn blown in the distance without tears starting in his eyes. In that moment of conflict, that horn represented the, 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 the coming relief column, the coming um, vast army that was going to free them and, and win the battle for them. And so in that moment, those horns blasting forward caught him in such a way that, that, that it, it was his salvation. It was the moment of victory. It was the moment of ending of death and all the rest. And, and in the future, whenever he heard horns again, even in the distance, there'd be a moment of tear. I, I wonder if Moses... At times in the future, we'll be walking past a bonfire, and I wonder if people would notice and wonder why there'd be a sudden glistening of a tear in his eyes. The, the aroma of it again would take him back to that moment when God restored him, that moment when God redeemed him. This is why we often, as believers, find ourselves before the face of God in prayer, even now in tears. There's an author who says, why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, said, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Have you been taken aside from your path? 
Has God at any point interrupted your life? Do you come to a place like this just for celebration only and to hang with friends or to hear an encouraging word or to encounter God? And when we encounter God, what does that mean? How does that change? How does that transform our lives and how we fight battles and how we face death and how we face loss? Does it change who we are? Do we boast or are we broken? Can we look into the Bible and look at Ephesians and and read the passage where it says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. We don't boast. We are the broken. We are the failed. We are the fallen. And yet at the same time, we are the redeemed, the reconciled, and the restored. We have come out of Egypt. We have addressed the question of who am I? You are a child of God, and I am with you. To now saying, who am I? That I should receive such grace. To now finally when people ask, who are you? Who am I? Let me tell you. I'm a sinner saved by grace. My life was intersected by God. And it changes absolutely everything. One final thing I want to share with you this morning. Because I don't know where some of you are at. I was telling one of our college students who's going to go to Michigan State University. And yes, I know U of M exists too, all right? But they're going to Michigan State. I said, well, while you're there, I said, you might drive down Saginaw Avenue sometime. And if you do, you'll look off to the side and you're going to see off to the right a, a um, old fire engine. Um, and it's in a glass case. I said, and behind that, there's going to be a, a fence, one of those cyclone fences that has these little curves at the top, you know, little, little X's at the top, little wires. I said, and behind that fence is the church that I grew up in as a kid. And just beyond that church is the parsonage, the, the home that the pastors were living. Um, and that's where I grew up. And I said, if you go along that fence line, I said, you walk along that fence, and you're going to find one of these wires is going to be bent. I said, that's my wire. <laughs> okay. And I know some of you are going, yeah, that's because you, you're bent. No, just, just no. I said, when I was a kid, about 10 years of age, um, we were playing on top of that fence, and um, I fell off it, and I, but, uh, and I, I went to grab it, and, and I, I didn't make it, and so it, it ripped my palm wide open. And I ran home quickly and uh, um, put pressure on it, and my dad took me in. And I remember having to put the shot right in the middle of it, though I was going to freeze it, and it was a really bad scene. It was at the same time period that my father um, was uh, uh, forced out of that church. It was the 60s, and the hippies were coming in with their tie-dye and long hair, and my dad didn't care if you were black or white or hippie or straight or whatever. He didn't care at all. To him, it was about the gospel. And so he embraced them, and interestingly enough, the one 60-year-old on his board, he was in his 30s at the time, embraced them. His other peers on the board, 30s and 40s, didn't. They wanted a, a church that was respectable, full of respectable people. They never heard this message, I guess. 
I don't think there's any truly respectable people. There are redeemed people and there are lost people and that's it. And redeemed people are broken people. And so in one moment, and the beauty of that time period is that because you had parsonages, they'd give you, say, 20000 as a salary and you had free housing instead of $30,000, which sounds great. It totally sucked, okay? Um, part of it being is you'd leave there and you'd have no equity by the time you retire. Um, but in this case, it meant that we lost our church home, lost our job, and we lost our actual home. And so we ended up in the 17-foot travel trailer for a period of time well, my dad built a, a cottage that has two bedrooms up top, very small, down at the church campgrounds, the denomination campgrounds, in Grass Lake. So we went from Lansing to Grass Lake. Guys, if that's not, not like going into the desert, I don't know what is, okay? And we were outside of town by a couple of miles, too, so it was very isolated. So I went from being in the social center, knowing everybody. I'd walk up to my school, and it'd be like Norm at Cheers, hey! You know, it was just like that. To going out there, hey, you. You know, no, nobody knew who I was. Grass Lake's mostly, you know, got a very small genetic pool. Um, two bedrooms upstairs, common room down below. So I slept on a couch for two years. So forgive me if I'm somewhat proprietary around my space at times whether it's my office or my bedroom or my library at home or whatever else, I, I tend to be a little bit. So for years after that, years after that, because this was real at the time it happened, um, you had to know my story if you're going to get to know me. Here's, how, here's my sufferings. Here's what I've gone through. Here's what happened. We lost this and this. And here's this scar. And sometimes I'd, I'd be like, like, like that one guy on the, on, the, on the old television show, came you and you're like, you know, kind of rubbing my scar and remembering the past. You know. And I'm getting in my 20s, decade past this, and it's still my story. It defined me. How ridiculous is that? You're a full lifetime past that, and it's still shaping your thinking, how you view yourselves, how you want others to view you. It was the most ridiculous, painful thing. There was finally a time when I hit my 20s where I had an engagement with God where I had to either own this and say it was my salvation, my grace receiving before God, and not just my parents' thing, that it was something I had to own. And I still remember very much doing that, and I remember realizing this can't be my story. This can no longer define me. This is ridiculous. And I laid that down at the feet of Christ. And I'll be honest, guys, I didn't even think about this scar until recently in talking about this message. I was trying to think of something that would be a relatable point in this, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, there's this. I haven't thought of it in decades. If I'd continue to dwell on this, I wouldn't even be here today because part of it was a hatred of the church, not of God, but of the church because of what I experienced. I wouldn't be here. I stand here strictly by the grace of God. You sit there strictly by the grace of God. We have done nothing in ourselves to earn this. This doesn't mean we go around crying all the time, but you know what? Whenever we hear a horn blow or we get a little whiff of a bonfire or maybe a passing glance at a scar, 
or something that reminds us of our past, there can be that moment of remembering that that was a eucatastrophe. <laughs> it was, a, it was, my, but it changed everything that God's grace came in, so that that thing no longer exists. I remember it differently now. And I don't remember it with the ending of sadness. I remember something that shaped me to be sensitive to those who were outside the pale. I never would have learned that growing up in Lansing where I would have been the first and foremost of everything involved. I learned what it meant to be an outcast. I learned what it meant to be isolated. I learned a lot of the things that Moses learned. And some of you have too. And some of the things that were horrible in your life, God intended to shape you doesn't mean you hold on to those. You let them go in grace. But you also realize the lessons from those. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. What is your identity today? Is it wrapped up in your gender, in your accomplishments, in your position, in your possession, in your profession? How do you respond to the God who calls you forth? This morning, he says, your identity is in me. I don't care what your past has been, but your future is mine. And you can lay hold of that today and start it fresh. That's what grace is about. And so this morning, before we go any further, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me on this homecoming Sunday. And I'm going to ask if there's anyone here this morning that either A, you have not turned your life over to Christ before, but this morning you feel that call of the Holy Spirit. You know your sins. You know your failings. And this morning you want to lay it down at his feet. You are broken. But you want to be freed today. I also would call for anyone here who has continued to be dogged by their past. You've accepted Christ. You, you've taken this new path, but you keep going back to that moment of, of guilt and, and, and pain. And you serve God, but you don't really feel like, like there's something finished and ended there. You keep living in that moment. If either of those are you today and you want to accept God's grace either for the first time or fully and completely redeeming the past, let this be a eucatastrophe moment for you. A time when you begin to recall the past differently. If that's you, I'm going to ask, I want to pray with you just quickly with no one looking around. Raise your hand quickly. Respond to God now and let's pray together. Wherever you're at, Father, we come before you. Lord, this dozen or so of us that responded in this moment of time. I pray, Father, for those who for the first time recognize their condition and lay it before your face, that, Lord, you would let their hearts even now be transformed. That as they say, who am I? That you would fill them with identity and say, what matters most is not even not who you are, but who I am. And I'm saying that I am with you right now. And Lord, for those who struggle with their past, including those who even struggle so much that they could not raise their hand, that, Lord, I pray this morning by your Holy Spirit you'd sweep into their spirit and into their soul and they'd no longer be fixated on who they are, but they would become completely transfixed on who you are and your love and your grace for them. And, Lord, let us as a community walk into this new season together 
We are the fallen. We are the failed and the broken. But we also, we also are the restored, the redeemed, and the reconciled. And we come before your face this morning as a body, as your church, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Moses was told that the way you're going to know the sign of this is that after you've freed all those people and after they've all come out of that place, that you're going to come back to this same mountain and you're going to worship me. We were the broken, the failed, the fallen. But we are the reconciled. We are the redeemed. We are the restored. Amen. So should we boast about that? No. No. But we can know who we are. Moses goes on from that point on. He brings them out of Egypt. A whole new nation is forged. Out of that moment of time, Christ himself ultimately comes and clarifies what Passover is about and opens salvation for all of mankind. All because one guy got off-road to go see a bush. And then the worst job interview ever. (laughs) Remember this moment. Remember this time when the church is gathered. Next week, we'll be back at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock, and some of you will never see each other ever again (laughs) until next year. But remember, and then join us. They've got food out there. They've got all the stuff going out there. People put time and energy into it. Join us and just get to know the people that are next to you, okay? Take time. I don't care what your schedule is. Set it aside. Just go on out and, and, and just hang. Father, we ask your blessing right now upon this food we're about to partake. For those who have to continue on through their day, Lord, we ask your blessing upon them. But we ask, Lord, that you would just establish us as your church. We, we look to this new season of ministry, Lord. We pray that you would um, just um, weigh in with your spirit to shape it. We commit all these things into your hands, and today we know who we are. And more importantly, we know who you are. And because of that, we stand. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, and the church said, Amen. Amen. Amen.